thankful for hymns, for psalms and spiritual songs, as the Apostle Paul writes of them. And like many of you, uh, many, many weeks, I feel like we need to keep singing. Um, Four doesn't seem to be enough, Uh, but thank you to our worship team. Thank you to you all for just singing out with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Even for those of you who say, I can't sing, really hope I will be able to one day. You will. You know how you can be assured that all those things we were singing about really will come to pass? Because Jesus came once, and he brought aspects of the kingdom right into the world. We're going to look at some of that in Luke 4 today and see how his power and authority which exceed, truly exceed the boundaries of our imagination began to overturn the world order that had been fully corrupted and destroyed through sin. These are little glimpses of what will be. So don't just relegate this study through the Gospels, you know, to a time in the past that we kind of glory in and even believe and accept by faith, but no, let it, let it seed your heart with hope for the future and far greater things than we could even sing about today or imagine. By the way, um, as we begin... Um, I do want to just put a little resource connection on the screen for you because two of the songs we sang this morning are actually produced by a group called Sovereign Grace Ministries, Sovereign Grace Music. And those two of those songs that we just sang, you can see the titles there, uh, come from this album, The Prayers of the Saints. And some of you are familiar with it. Uh, if you're not, you should be. And it would be a powerful resource for your own personal worship. And uh, we haven't introduced even the majority of these songs from this particular collection here, but we did sing two of them today, and I thought it might be helpful for you to know where they come from. So there you go. Open your Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. This is page 859, if you are using one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, and I do want to ask you to open to the Word of God. We'll read the portion for this morning in just a moment, but before we do, I want to ask you a few questions. If you were suddenly in a position, not only authorized, but actually had the power to do it, what changes in this world we're living in at this moment would you make? Like, what would you announce? And beyond the announcement, I mean, what would you begin to implement? And some of your minds are just spinning out of control right now. And others of you are like, oh, that makes me tired thinking about that. Would you begin right here in this community? Maybe you'd travel to Washington, D.C. Maybe you'd pick another capital city in the world. Would you appoint new leadership? Would you establish a flat tax? Would you rein in spending? Would you consolidate and even abolish certain agencies? How many redundancies are in our own government here? We feel exasperated with those things. Maybe you would establish some new laws or even overturn some bad laws. You know, in the next section of Luke's gospel, Jesus actually does something like this. He announces not just a divine mission that he personally is on, he's actually announcing a new world order. 
he's actually announcing a message at the core of this work that he is beginning. But surprisingly, he doesn't make the initial announcement in Israel's capital city. He certainly doesn't travel to Rome, the center of the Roman Empire, and make an announcement in Caesar's presence, though he actually has greater authority than Caesar or any other ruler earth has ever known. No, he begins in the familiar neighborhood of Nazareth. It's his hometown, and it's not even an impressive town. Nobody looks at Nazareth at this moment as a power center, but it's exactly where the king of the universe begins to reorder life as we know it. Now Luke frames this particular section with two verses, verse 15 and verse 44, telling us that Jesus taught and preached in the synagogues. And so those kind of serve as the beginning and ending markers for us as we work through this passage. So I want to invite you to look at verse 14 uh, as we kind of pick up a little thought from last week where we concluded the temptation of Christ. And then we're going to read to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Luke 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman, the Syrian, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And he came to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. In the and in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ah, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent 
and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we too stand amazed that the eternal Son of God entered this world becoming what we are in order that he might make his dwelling among us and speak with the authority of heaven and heal and even exercise demons with the authority of heaven. And by doing such works and preaching such word, transform us and begin to transform the world. Oh, how we long for the culmination of his kingdom to come. But we pray that even this morning, you, by the power and authority of that same spirit, would establish your dominion in our hearts. That you would expel from us every rebel spirit, every rebel thought, every part of us that resists this sweet and holy and gracious word of authority that you would bring us under your complete rule that we may be everything you ever created us to be and certainly everything by the power of Christ's redemption you intend us to be. Let your kingdom come. And we ask for those who sit with us who have such great questions, some of them hard circumstances, that they would see you are the good news. It is not simply a, a statement of truth or a combination of principles for life that you are offering, but you stand before us on this day and say, come to me and I will give you rest. So Lord Jesus, come. Let your kingdom come. Be our king in this place in every way, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We'll go back to verse 15 with me, if you will, please. And as I noted just a moment ago, uh, Luke sets down that Jesus was teaching in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, I want to just, that's a picture of a historic site, actually the synagogue in Capernaum. It's fourth century. It's not the actual one Jesus taught in. It was built on top of the one that Jesus stood in, this, this story that we are 
reading today, but it'll give you a little sense of the size. And synagogues were not just uh, local houses of worship and religious centers for a Sabbath day worship gathering. They really were the center of a community. And, and so much that happened in a place like Nazareth or Capernaum or these other towns and villages centered in the synagogue. It's a strategic place. And the Lord arrives in the synagogue at Nazareth on this particular Sabbath day as any other good Jewish man would, ready to participate. But on this day, he has the privilege of reading from the Old Testament scriptures and they would have expected him to elaborate on the scriptures but there's a surprise awaiting for all of them. And so he reads from Isaiah 61, a portion of the first two verses. Doesn't even continue into that portion if you were to go back and compare where God also talks about a day of vengeance coming and wrath and judgment to follow. He stops short of that. But he reads this little portion of Isaiah 61 and then says something that's quite stunning, but it actually launches his ministry and establishes that he is present to to proclaim good news and ultimately he is the good news. Now look at the, the good news of his authority first of all because this portion of Isaiah 61 that's quoted here in our text notes that it is the spirit of the Lord that is upon Christ because, and then there are two verbs associated with what the Spirit has done, and we've been watching this build through his baptism, through the temptation. It's been noted repeatedly that the Spirit is fully present in and with and over and through Jesus. But look at the two verbs here. He has anointed me, and then the second verb, just a few words later, he has sent me. Now we know anointing has to do with consecration. We've seen that already. It was prophesied of Christ at his birth. It's already been unfolding before us. But this concept that he is the sent one and at the root of this word is the same idea of an apostle. And there will be apostles who follow Christ. He's the great apostle, the great sent one. That's all that term means, a sent one. But he's been anointed and sent to proclaim. Now, there are actually two terms in Luke's gospel, in the, in the Greek text, uh, that are translated into the English. Both use the word proclaim. That's a little unfortunate for us, but it's not something that you really need to be deeply concerned about or even confused by. It's always the challenge of translation. I try to remind you often, you know, that it, it's what happens when you take one language into, an, <clears throat> into another language. Now, the first term is that Jesus draws out of Isaiah 61 is that he has been anointed and sent to proclaim good news. We need three English words to translate the one Greek term. And interestingly enough, this is the first uh, occurrence in Luke's gospel of this, but it's the, the first of 25 times in the gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles that Luke will use this term. 54 occurrences in, in all the New Testament for you real eggheads who care about that stuff. The term simply means the annunciation of the gospel of Christ and all that pertains to it. In its noun form, the term refers to the rule of God in the human heart. You say that sounds like his kingdom. Exactly. And so in the noun form, if you were to to transliterate this, it would sound more like the evangel, which is the gospel message. And you say evangel, that sounds like evangelical. 
You're getting it. You're tracking along that line. It is a marvelous word. It's a term, unfortunately, that has a lot of uh, present-day political baggage with it, and that's really unfortunate. We need to fight to hang on to this term. Just be careful when and where you use it. Because what you hear in the news today about the, you know, the conservative evangelical uh, you know, political movement, that's a misrepresentation. This is just a term that speaks of the good news of what God the Father is doing through God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit, proclaiming good news. So Jesus says, this is, this is what I've been anointed and sent to do. The second term that you see repeated twice, proclaim liberty, proclaim favor. It is a different term, although the English uh, is, is helpful for us, and it's, it's a really good translation. But notice what Jesus is making known. And it's a term that means to proclaim publicly, even loudly. You know, in the old days where, you know, there was no printed material or uh, certainly no internet and, and electronic communication, you would actually have uh, a public herald who would stand in the town square and he would deliver the news, sometimes on behalf of the local ruler, sometimes just to keep people posted. And he would stand in a strategic place and he would just shout the news. Well, that's kind of what's wrapped into this word. So there's a public and even loud uh, message that is being given. And the message here is of liberty and favor. There's a work of liberation that is beginning on this very day. Liberation from slavery, slavery, liberation from imprisonment, liberation from bondage. And notice that Jesus, as he reads this passage, says, I've also been anointed and sent to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What a marvelous message. The first message preached by Jesus is not a list of commands or moral requirements for people to enter the kingdom, but it is a, a proclamation from heaven on high. God himself, through this uniquely anointed servant, saying, liberty has come, favor has come to the world. Now notice the next thing in the text. Who are the recipients? Who's this good news actually intended for? What's the target audience, we might say? Well, there are four descriptors here, and you can see the text in, in front. The poor, the captives, the blind, and those who are oppressed. But you must not think simply in terms of physical or financial uh, difficulties and oppression. There's a whole spiritual realm of suffering that's in view here, all of which is connected to our sin. Everything that is being listed here in Isaiah 61 that Jesus is preaching through uh, has to do with sin itself. These are the grim effects of sin. The poverty that's spoken of here is, is a reference to complete destitution. We're not talking about a, temporarily, uh, a, a temporary hardship that someone's experiencing. We're talking about a spiritual bankruptcy. The term captives refers to those who've actually been conquered and subsequently become POWs. And the question would be, well, what prisoners of war? What war is this? It's the spiritual war. It's the war that the devil himself brought into the world. And as he began to dominate ordinary people like us through, through temptation and sin, we became captives who have no capacity to deliver ourselves. Who are the blind? This is a term that literally, and, and we're not using it literally here, but just to build a little bit of an image for you, it literally means to envelop with smoke. Think of an inversion here, you know, in the Salt Lake Valley. 
And, and sometimes it's so thick that you just, you can't see very far. You certainly can't see the beauty that surrounds you. Not even sure that the sun is shining other than it does get a little lighter, you know, than it was, you know, in the middle of the night. But you just can't see clearly. And that's the kind of spiritual blindness that is being alluded to here. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us the God of this world has blinded the eyes or minds of the unbelieving lest they should see the glory of God as it's revealed in the face of Jesus. Sometimes we share the good news and it seems so plain and simple, easy to believe and grasp, and yet the person that you're sharing with seems to have no understanding whatsoever. That's because there's a spiritual blindness that is overtaken. Finally, he speaks of those who are oppressed. And this is a term that speaks of much more than just a sense of like, oh, I got stuff hanging over me. No, there's a, there is a crushing, bruising oppression in reference here. These are the grim effects of sin. And I wonder as we work our way through these four categories, if any uh, of these hit home for you. Do you relate to any of these? Is there some past experience or even present issue that has left you spiritually destitute? Maybe you would say there, there's a sin that I, 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 I feel so guilty about and it, it, it has bankrupted my heart and my mind and even my emotions. Or maybe some of you would say, I've been a part of a religious tradition that actually has left me spiritually impoverished. Jesus proclaims good news for you. Maybe you say, I have an addiction. It might be a secret addiction. It might be something in the open that you're actively working through, but there's something that exerts its power over you it could be a lust it could be some kind of uh, of foreign substance that you drink or ingest but it has conquered you and in a very real way today you are a prisoner of war could be a painful memory from the past day after day it just comes for you you don't even have to be thinking about going into the past, but those memories just arise, and you're like, here I am again. How will I shake this? Jesus proclaims good news for captives like you. Maybe you feel like you are enveloped with confusion, a spiritual inversion, as it were, that keeps you from seeing clearly. You try, you study, you take courses, you read, you converse with people that you think and believe to be wiser than you just so you could kind of get clarity, but it just never comes to you. Jesus proclaims good news for you in your blindness. Perhaps you are so beaten down today by a sense of shame or maybe the failures that are in your past, or maybe it's even the words of another person who just has crushed you, told you repeatedly that you are worthless, said things like this, you're the biggest mistake I ever made, and those words or those experiences press your soul into the dust on this day. You are truly oppressed. Oh, my friend, Jesus proclaims good news for you. And what did he say to Nazareth? 
today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, 30 years before this, the angels announced to a little group of shepherds outside Bethlehem on the hillside one night, today a Savior is born. And now in Nazareth on this day, it's not angelic announce, uh, 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 messengers who come, it's Jesus himself who says, I am here. Does he really have power to do this kind of thing? Is he really authorized to bring the poor and the captive and the blind and the oppressed out of those different scenarios? Does he have the power to cleanse away the shame and guilt that I carry in my soul today, you might say? Well, buckle up, because what unfolds is the demonstration that he really is authorized to do that and so much more. So we're in, in the synagogue at Nazareth. Look at verse 22. Jesus is speaking, and, and it's interesting. We're, we're going to compare Nazareth with Capernaum. But initially, they seem to have uh, a response that we would commend, right? Look at verse 22. All spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? The hometown boy doing something with himself. Wow, who would have thought? And so they're, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a nice thing that they're speaking well of him. And when the text says they're marveling at him, I mean, they're amazed. They're amazed by the gracious words. There's something about the words Jesus is speaking that are attractive to them at this moment. It interests them. It even pleases them. But don't be fooled. The description of their response is not actually a response of faith because Jesus, never content with just a little surface politeness, is going to take the authoritative word right to the soul. And so look at verse 23. He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So let's set this up. Like the word has, has apparently come back from Capernaum, he's a miracle worker, right? We know that. But they haven't seen it firsthand. And at this moment, they're, they're not staring at direct evidence of the greatness, and certainly not the greatness he has just said. Uh, Isaiah was talking about me 750 years ago when he gave this prophecy. So it's a little bit of a, a skepticism that emerges. And furthermore, it would be true from their perspective that Jesus has not broken out of the poverty and insignificance that characterized so many of the citizens of Nazareth. He hasn't assembled an army to overthrow Rome or a following that would wrest control from the corrupt Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. So now, no doubt they are actually thinking, well, how can he claim to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy when we haven't seen him do anything yet? So prove it, man. Physician, heal yourself. But Jesus is not interested in answering the questions they might have been asking. He is going to go to the real heart issue that he knows exists within them. Look at verse 24. He says, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. What? That, that seems like an unnecessary provocation. They haven't said anything about not liking him at this point. They haven't said anything about withholding favor from him. Now, why would he say that? Well, look at where he goes. What Jesus is going to do is actually hold the mirror of the Old Testament 
before them and challenge them to really see themselves as they are. And how does he do that? Well, he he pulls two stories that would have been familiar to them right out of the Old Testament. The first is of the, uh, the prophet Elijah. The second is of the prophet Elisha. And let's take the first one. The prophet Elijah had no honor in his hometown, as it were. His call uh, to Israel to repent of their sin was met with rejection. The people continued to rebel. Very few, very few people, if you go back and look through that, really had a heart surrendered to the Lord. And through Elijah, God sent this drought that is referenced here three and a half years that resulted in a famine. Hard times. But even that discipline was designed by the Lord to move the people out of their rebellion back into a place of, of submission and obedience and blessing. But they wanted nothing, to, nothing of it. So God graciously sent Elijah to feed the Sidonian widow from Zarephath. She's a Gentile. Now why would God care for her and not his chosen people? And the answer is, because they're rebellious and unbelieving. And this dear woman is an example of simple, humble faith. Second story bears out the same uh, storyline. Elisha likewise had no honor in his home territory. So God graciously uh, cleanses the Syrian general and leper named Naaman. This is doubly offensive. It's not just that Naaman is a Gentile. But he actually works for the opposition, leads their armies against the chosen people of God. You remember when the Wagner group was all in the news related to this, you know, Russian-Ukrainian offensive and their leader actually dies an untimely death? Just imagine that you hear an amazing story about God reaching that man, saving him, rescuing him, blessing him, healing him of a terminal disease. And you'd say like, no, like God, where's your sense of justice? He and his you know, military forces behind him have done great evil and done great harm. Yeah, that, that does uh, offend our natural sense of justice, doesn't it? Well, that's, that's not far off from how this story unfolded in the Old Testament and how the, how the Nazarenes are hearing it. Because if you're a patriotic Israelite, to put it this way, of course you'd pray for the demise of all Syrians especially a general. It's a reminder that God is no respecter of persons. And the beautiful side of that is he is consequently gracious to all who believe. And what Jesus is pressing upon the Nazarenes is that they must not only recognize that God's grace extends beyond the Jewish people but that they actually, like the Gentiles at their despise, are dwelling in a spiritual poverty of their own. That their sin has corrupted them as fully and completely as these Gentiles that they despise. Jesus is calling them to accept the fact that they need salvation as much as anyone who lives outside the borders of the blessed homeland. He's calling them, in a real sense, to identify with the people they really dislike. And the good news 
calls every one of us to stand in solidarity first as sinners. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. Some of you have grown up in evangelical preaching homes. Oh, what a gift. It's no guarantee that you yourself are under the rule of the great evangel. Look at their response. They're outraged. And that rage against Jesus, so offended at their heart, leads them to do something it's unimaginable. You know, it's been interesting this week to watch the, uh, the outrage across the nation because of the beating two New York City police officers took at the hands of illegal immigrants. And part of what stokes the anger in our hearts is the response of several of these young men who, when released from the court, rather than humbly acknowledging the mercy that they had been shown, actually had the audacity and arrogance to make vulgar gestures toward those who were reporting this event. You know, the Nazarenes respond to Jesus in an equally audacious and arrogant way. You see, they're not only filled with wrath as opposed to repentance, but look at the text. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. How do you go from, hey, could you show us some miracles, to we're going to kill you? Do you know that phrase, drove him out of town? I learned this this week. It, it actually appears uh, in one of the Old Testament translations called the Septuagint. And it is actually used uh, as a, to, to capture a, a ritual practice that three different cities, uh, it's recorded in Leviticus, Second Chronicles, and First Kings, three different cities did this to rid themselves of some polluting influence. And these words are used to describe those moments. The one city was ridding itself of a plague, the second city was ridding itself of foreign gods, and the third city was ridding itself of an evil person. And I think Luke uses this. He would have been very familiar with the Septuagint. I should say, I wonder, as many others do, if he's using this to really highlight the, the audacious and arrogant act of rebellion of the Nazarenes because what it says to us is this act on their part tells us they view Jesus as nothing more than a Gentile pollutant to be expelled. Is that not staggering? He's the anointed one sent to overturn the grim effects of sin. And yet when he arrives, what do they want to do? Drive him out as if he's the polluting problem. It shows you the death grip sin has on our souls. And this is only the beginning of raging hostility against Jesus. It will escalate in the coming weeks and months and years and it will culminate on a hill we call Calvary. But they're no threat to him. 
And as Luke records, passing through their midst, he went away. I think there may be no sadder words ever penned of a community than these. Jesus went away. It's heartbreaking to see a community of people like this reject the very one who has been anointed and sent to liberate and relieve them, to heal and redeem them. But I can't help but think that's exactly what some of you have done to date. You've heard the gospel message. You've had family and friends appeal to you. Believe, brother. Receive God's forgiveness, sister. Oh, dear spouse of mine, submit your life fully to Jesus. And yet at this point, it actually makes you angry to think of Jesus establishing his dominion within your heart. And yet here you are today under the sound of a messenger voice in the company of other friends and associates hearing Jesus appeal to you again, turn from your sin, come to me, receive my forgiveness, receive the gift of eternal life. Don't beg Jesus to leave you. Because if you refuse him long enough and firmly enough, he may actually do that. Well, Capernaum's an example of outrage. I didn't put the second one up there. Their amazement turns to anger. Let's, let's go to Capernaum. So Luke now tells us uh, that Jesus turns his attention toward uh, what really will become his adopted hometown. Oh, there's so much that happens in Capernaum. We're going to spend a lot of time in Capernaum with Jesus uh, as, as he ministers there. Uh, there are at least eight miracle stories that are located in Capernaum. Two of them we're going to uh, walk through very briefly this morning, and there are more to come. It's just a marvelous place. But you'll notice, too, verse 32. Go, go to verse 32 with me, that as Jesus begins to preach there, and it doesn't tell us if he used the Isaiah 61 text, but, you know, maybe he did. Maybe he had another passage uh, that, that he... Uh, unfolded for them. All it tells us in verse 32 is that they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. If you read, read the comparable, comparable account in Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 22, he actually adds another little detail he, that Jesus taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. I always find that humorous. That's a little dig. Like the scribes would read the Bible and make comments, but I mean, there just wasn't a lot to it. Probably a lot of, you know, sleepy nodding heads. Um, any of you here fighting sleep today? <laughs> Jesus has authority. We can be sure of that. Earthly preachers may or may not, right? He preaches with authority. But notice, he also serves with authority, and I think that's part of what Luke really wants to get to because not only are these people recognizing the authoritative word in that teaching or preaching setting in the synagogue, but now look at the story that he includes. Because Jesus' authority is manifested, verse 33, as a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon stands and cries out with his loud voice. Quick pause. Demons are simply fallen angels. They're created beings. Uh, there are a few things told to us in the scriptures about their existence. One of the things that you will find, particularly in the New Testament, is that they are spoken of as the authors or instigators of moral evil against mankind. 
places like 1 Timothy 4, James 2, Ephesians 6. But in the Gospels, you will frequently see them either entering into people, which is a terrifying prospect, or even oppressing, and sometimes a general word demonizing is used. But whenever they begin to exert their influence, they are afflicting people with all kinds of trouble. One author writes, those possessed... Uh, as as you see it in the New Testament, those possessed are depicted throughout as unfortunate sufferers who by no fault of their own are dominated by evil spirits and who when the spirits are cast out by Jesus accept their deliverance with joy and gratitude. I think they may be one of the clearest examples of captives and oppressed people that Isaiah 61 mentions. Now notice this. As the, and you have to wonder, like, why would this, why would this demonic spirit even, even kind of reveal himself? Well, he's compelled to, and he's absolutely terrified because his question to Jesus is, what have you, do, have you to do with us? And then he goes on to say, have you come to destroy us? Now, you remember that great passage we looked at briefly last week from Hebrews 2, verse 14, that tells us straight up, yes, Jesus came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. 1 John 3, verse 8, also tells us the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So in one sense, yeah, that's exactly why Jesus is here. He's coming for you, buddy. And, and this demon knows there's no escape. So the best I can do is engage him right now, maybe buy a little more time. Uh, it makes me think of that other story where the, the, the legion of demons ask if they can just be you know, relocated into the, into the bodies of those poor pigs. Uh, that's, that's a whole other story and sermon. Um, but, but again, you, you need to understand that demonic forces are no match for our king. They're just not. And then he says, I know who you are. The Holy One of God. He has more sense of reality at that moment than the Nazarenes had who just expelled Jesus. Is it possible that the demons have more sense than some of you? Well, Jesus is so much more than a historic figure. Great leader from the past. A prophetic presence. What an unlikely witness this demon becomes testifying truly to the identity and authority of the Son of God. But look at what Jesus does. And, and he's showing us, I'm not only preaching a message that I have authority to liberate, I'm gonna do it. Watch this. So he liberates the oppressed man. And in the Greek, it's only five words. I think it's what, seven for us. But he rebukes him and he says, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, last little temper tantrum, he came out of him having done him no harm. He he can't resist the authoritative word of the king. Jesus says, come out. He's got to come out. And isn't it beautiful that Luke, who's a doctor, adds that little note, having done him no harm. What kind of thoughts do you think that man lived with for whatever period of time this demon possessed him? I'm sure every day he was terrified. What's going to happen today? Am I going to be publicly humiliated when this demon does something with my body? You know, as as I'm out on the street? We don't know details like that, but you can be sure that this man had lived in a state of perpetual terror, oppression, and bondage. 
we won't take a lot of time with this, but verse 41 returns to this, and it's not just another demon. It just refers to many people coming and many demons being cast out. They also bear witness, and you can look at verse 41 um, and, and to the end of the chapter, but they, they don't say you're the Holy One of God. They just say you're the Son of God, and Jesus rebukes them, uh, doesn't allow them to speak because it's not their business, it's not their privilege even to reveal him to other people. But, but go back to our text and notice the question the Capernaums ask at this point. What is this word? They've been amazed at his preaching because it, it carries a weight, a weightiness and authority that not even the scribes carry into the synagogues on a typical Sabbath day. But here he speaks a word that has an immediate effect and impact. And they go on to say, for with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And we need to know that there's a king who has greater, far greater power than the forces of darkness, and they are alive and well in this valley. Some of you have lived under the grip of demonic oppression, maybe even seen possession. This king is far greater. He delivered then, he delivers now. He's anointed, sent to proclaim liberty. Look at verse 38. Last little part. Jesus not only has authoritative word, I'm way behind here. To cast out those demons, to liberate people who are oppressed, but he has an authoritative word to heal the sick. This is sweet. They finish up, he finishes up ministry at the synagogue. It's still the Sabbath. Goes to Peter's home. Peter's from Capernaum. His mother-in-law is there and, and she's sick with a fever. There's some who, I guess historically speaking, it is true that that area, because of it's, it's right on the Sea of Galilee, uh, the elevation also, it's hundreds of feet below sea level. I think I'm telling you that accurately, but at least in that day, malaria was a really big deal. Some were like, maybe this was malaria, maybe. There are others who would say, because of the way the language speaks here of Jesus rebuking the illness, it's the only example of Jesus rebuking an actual physical illness. And maybe what he's actually rebuking is another demonic oppressive power there. We don't know that. Luke doesn't give us those particular details, but here's what he does tell us. He rebuked the fever and it left her and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Oh, there's so much there. Can I give you a little preview? These miracles, these, this authoritative word that's preached, that's used to exercise demons, to heal the sick, it's actually gonna culminate in just a couple of more chapters when Jesus will perform a healing and then he's gonna put that question, what's easier to say, rise, be healed, or your sins are forgiven? And what he's doing is laying groundwork for people like you and me to fully believe he has the authority to forgive our sins and set us on our feet and make us useful in his service. There's no rehabilitation time. There's no therapy she has to go through before she's spiritually qualified to serve. He just heals her on the spot and she does what many mother, mothers-in-law do, right? Time to get back in the kitchen and serve these people. It's toward the end of the day. She's probably getting a little supper ready. What authority is this? 
Then verse 40 says, now when the sun was setting, so here we are into the Sabbath, so now people can actually walk you know, more than you know, a few hundred yards or whatever it was. And they, they start swarming him, bringing everybody who's sick. Well, they should. That's what you do with Jesus. You come to him with your junk. And he laid hands on how many? Read the text. Laid hands on. Do you see it? Are you looking at it? Every one of them. Well, how long did that healing service take? Who knows? Maybe all night. That may be part of the reason it reads in verse 42, when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. But here's Jesus laying, laying his hands on sick people and healing them. We know that laying on of hands is always a sign of blessing. And while we don't know how many were healed, every one of them receives this touch. And I think it's such an astonishing mingling of divine power and personal tenderness. And I'm struck again that the God who formed mankind from the dust of the ground, and, and I mean, we know that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all involved there. But, but here is Jesus who first formed these people in his image, but by sin, they have taken a catastrophic fall and he's returned not just to the dust with them, but becoming one of us. And now, in, a, in one sense, the same hands that formed these people initially return to heal and bless and restore to redeem and save. What a God. What a king. And what a plan to overturn the world order of darkness. It's begun. And that's how you and I can live in hope that it will be completed. And as we were singing earlier, we will know, we will see, we will know. We'll see him face to face. And whether it's illness that you're dealing with of a physical kind or just some Un, what seems to be an unending battle with depression or discouragement or a sin that's besetting as the New Testament refers to other places, you can, you can be assured that it won't always be like this because when Jesus arrives, this is who he is. It's the message he proclaims and it's what he does. Verse 42, when it was day, he departed, went into a desolate place. Mark actually tells us he went to pray. And the people sought him and came to him. Oh, how different this is from Nazareth, right? And they would have kept him from leaving them. Of course. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent. He knows his mission. I was sent for this purpose. And Luke wraps it all up by saying, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Well, there it is. The king, who's also a preacher. The king, who's a healer. The king who comes with authority to inaugurate a new kingdom and to establish an eternal dominion. Do you see why we would say he's the good news? It's all in him. Anointed and sent by the Spirit of God, proclaiming this authoritative message of the kingdom of God and working authoritatively to reverse the consequences of our sin. Have you bowed before him to submit to his authority in your life? 
Has there been a moment where you've stood in solidarity with any other sinner? Or are you like the Nazarenes who were still thinking they're better than Sidonian widows and Syrian generals? And for anybody, even Jesus, to show up on their doorstep and go, hey, there's sin to be repented of. That, that just enrages them. Is that you? There's time. You should repent today. You should humble yourself before the gracious administration of this king because he would forgive all your sins and save you. There are others of you who say, you know, I, I am trusting Jesus for my salvation, but I sometimes really struggle with his intentions for good in my life and does he still possess authority and even desire to do some of the things we're seeing him do here? He said it. It's exactly why he's anointed and, and sent. Are you actively trusting him? Or are you just taking control again? Saying, you know what, I, I think I can handle this. Can you? You and I both know better. Return to him. Like the sweet Capernaums, as I call them. Beg him to stay. Jesus, we need you. Differences in this day, he doesn't actually leave us, not even to go off to do other ministry to return. It's a mystery to us, but he is present everywhere and he is present with us. And he's the king who's establishing a new world, world order. So trust him, look to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are, for what you're doing. And we ask that as we conclude our time this morning that you would strengthen our hearts and give us grace to believe. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.